0: Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoyevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today John Ellis. He is Distinguished Professor Emeritus of German Literature at the University of California, Santa Cruz. He's taught at many universities uh, in his career in England, Wales, and Canada. He went to Santa Cruz in 1966. He was Dean of the Graduate Division from 77 to 86. He's the author of many books, including Literature Lost. He founded the Association of Literary Scholars and Critics in 1993, He's served as president of the California Association of Scholars, 2007 to 2013, and he's been a longtime trenchant critic of the uh, trends in, in higher education, especially in the humanities. He has a new book out called The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done. I read it this week. It was a very fast and smooth read about some not so happy uh, trends going on in in the campus thank you for joining us john
1: good to be with you mark
0: all right now uh you jump right into some of the problems that we see on campus today and one thing you often do is compare the current situation to the past situation and i just wanted to do a quick question about the phenomenon of the campus shutdown of speakers you get protesters showing up they shout down, they grab microphones, they they cause problems and and often get or sometimes get violent. Now, in the past, you note, publicity was enough to block further disruptions. But now public disapproval doesn't seem to sway disruptors at all. They seem to be immune to headlines in the in the newspapers or or even legal threats from from outside.
1: Why is this? Well, I think what you're seeing is the effects of the increasing control of the radical left, of the campuses. You know, even 10, 20 years ago, there was a sufficient pushback from some segments of the campus that protesters had to be somewhat careful uh, that that uh, that's obviously no longer the case. I mean, protesting students, even when they get on the verges of violence or even over the over the edge of violence, pretty well know that the campus is behind them. That the administration will be lenient with them if it does anything at all, and that uh, there's sufficient volume now of radical sentiment among the faculty. That they can rely on um, a majority sentiment in their favour, and that has an effect. The inhibitions are completely gone, and uh, you know, protesters will do whatever they whatever they want to do. They'll they'll now sh- completely shut down lectures. They, I mean, for years they disrupted. Now they aim to shut down. Uh, this is quite different.
0: And the and the the, the more moderate liberal and those few, whatever few conservative professors are on campus, that they're not gonna get involved in these controversial issues. It, it, just, it just doesn't pay to you know, cause for themselves headaches. They've got papers to write, they've got papers to grade, and, and it, they, they, do they look at it and just make a calculation of I'm just gonna go off, do my own thing. I'm not gonna worry about the atmosphere of the campus at large.
1: Well, they know that their social life on campus will be over if they um, make themselves too visible as supporters of the other side. They'll be immediately uh, caricatured as conservatives, even if they're not. Um, uh, You know, um, the, the majority sentiment is quite punitive. Uh, to anyone who appears to stand up for the other side. For example, I mean, uh, you probably know the case of Amy Wax at the University of Pennsylvania, um, a professor of law who spoke up um, about uh, how, in fact, the black community could improve itself by adopting certain patterns of behavior. Half the law school faculty immediately uh, penned a a, a a joint letter to her condemning her. But what was interesting was that the other half did nothing. The other half remained silent, um, and that silence was perhaps as eloquent as the as uh, the the letter penned by the the other half.
0: Right, right. And they they didn't let up uh, on on Amy, did they? I mean her her. As you say, your social life is over on campus when you when, when you do something like that. It's, it's a kind of shunning that takes place. Now, you speak early in the book of the quote formally uninhibited atmosphere of college campuses. And I'm not sure that young people, perhaps people under 40, know how freewheeling the campus. Used to be when you started at, at UC Santa Cruz in the mid '60s, what, what was the atmosphere like then? I mean, it was this was this was the high time of the anti-war movement, the protesters. We we had uh, the militant forms uh, of the civil rights movement breaking breaking out. You're up in the Bay Area. Was there was there fear of this kind back then?
1: No, there, there was a remarkably open atmosphere on the campuses. I mean, I've been on the Berkeley campus, for example, when in a committee meeting, when floating in through the window was tear gas, uh, because there was a confrontation between police and students. There was um, there was no inhibition about faculty speaking up. I, I can remember one faculty meeting, for example, on, on my campus where there was a strong move to get the faculty to pass a, an anti-war resolution. Uh, and it seemed to be passing. And a professor of sociology, a friend of mine, got up and uh, gave a very coherent speech on how this would be a dreadful mistake for the university to commit itself to a political position. It would, it would compromise its independence uh, it would, in fact, violate state laws. Uh, it was a dreadful idea to get the university involved in politics. The university was a place where, where both sides could be discussed, but there could not be a political position taken. The Astonishingly, the mood in the, the, the hall changed instantly, and the resolution was voted down. Now, that was probably about something like 1968. That's almost unthinkable now. That simply would not happen. And that professor didn't
0: suffer for what
1: he said? No, 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 no. He was a well-known conservative, and people accepted the fact that such things happened on campus. In fact, I I think it was 1967, two senior conservative sociologists were appointed in the same year on the Santa Cruz campus, no less. You know, there was a sense that a healthy debate required both sides and that healthy debate did take place that day when the anti-war resolution was presented and the issues were fully aired and the audience of all the professors on campus, the audience sat there and made up their minds, listened to the points made by one side and the other and then voted strongly in the, end, in the direction of voting down the anti-war message. And that was how the campus used to function. It was a debating room uh, where issues were ventilated and both sides, all sides, came out and people stayed friends. Uh, now, that, that situation is long gone. Uh, it, it simply cannot happen.
0: You, you note at one point in the book that fifty years ago nobody would have predicted such a a strong bias of any political kind would emerge the way it has at what point at what point did you realize that we are crossing a line now
1: well I think that my own awareness that things were irretrievably corrupted, probably dates from about 1988. Now, that doesn't mean that the irretrievable corruption dated from that time. It meant that that was the time I realized that things were were now unstoppable. Probably the time when it actually happened, I mean, the damage, the irretrievable damage was done, was 1965 to 75. And that, as I describe in the book, There was a a dreadful historical accident, two things happened in in that decade, and if the two had been separated, I mean, uh, one of them was the Vietnam War, uh, roiled the campuses, and the other one was the massive new hiring of professors as a result of new campuses opening and existing ones expanding. Uh, due to the baby boomers coming of age and going to campus. Now, the fact that those two things happened at the same time was tragic for the country, because what it meant was that uh, public higher education went from 4 million in 1965, enro- 4 million students enrolled, to 9 million enrolled by 10 years later, which meant if you think of the number of professors that were in the country in '65, you had to hire 25% more than that number almost instantly, which in the best of times, you couldn't have maintained quality with, with such a massive uh, need to, to find new professors. But the fact that the Vietnam War was was hitting the campuses at ex- almost exactly the same time, 65 to 75, was the, the time of major unrest. And during that time, unhappiness about the draft and about what was perceived by the younger generation as an older generation that was lying to them uh, and doing all sorts of bad things. Political radicalism was given a huge boost by that unhappiness over the war. And so just at the time when you were having to hire huge numbers of new professors, the people you had to take them from, the people, the hiring, the population you had from which you would take those new professors was temporarily, artificially, left radical. Now, if the Vietnam War had been 10 years earlier or 10 years later, and it hadn't coincided with that massive hiring program, the country would be in a much better place. The fact that uh, what you had in in effect, because of the conf- confluence of those two factors, you had a huge influx of radical left people who were more interested in politics than in academic values. That was a, a terrible tragedy for the universities. Now, that did not mean that they were overnight corrupted. Um, I My sense was that the university world still looked like what it was for another 10 years 15 years and it was at the end of that time that i suddenly realized that the damage that had been done was irreparable and the the generation that had been recruited in those 10 years 65 75 as it came to an age where it was controlling departments it was becoming department chairs and so on then you could suddenly see what had really happened and how how tragic it had been. And I think there was no going back after that.
0: John, how did you escape the trend? Why didn't you just uh, John, why didn't you just go along, go with the flow? What was wrong with
1: you? well, I was uh, I'm afraid I was really in love with the old academy. I thought it was the most wonderful place to um to to work one's living. Um, I thought it was an ideal place to live and to work, a a community devoted to ideas, the development of ideas, to thinking, to researching, to developing new ideas, and to getting young people to open their minds and to think productively. I couldn't think of a, a better profession to be in. And uh, so that when I started to realize that uh, it had been irretrievably corrupted, this was, I would say, about 88 was that the realization came upon me that this was now almost hopeless. I, like some others, uh, it was a network across the country of people who, who uh, started to write and to agitate for this, to, this trend to be stopped. On campus, uh, most people did go along. Um, The the people I think, most professors decided that their social life would be over if they protested publicly. Too many people were going along with it. So there there arose a a network of people nationwide who, who were soon in contact with each other, and they wrote books and articles about this. But on the whole, they were not able to stop it.
0: Why isn't the public more upset about what you say is, quote, the unashamed and quite open suppression of conservative voices,
1: unquote? Well, I think they are becoming... Uh, I think that the situation of the public opinion is the interesting thing now to look at. It's clear that the campuses can't change internally. I mean, the the one party campus is set in stone. The administration is fully behind it. It's part of it, really. And so the other, the only other um, agency that is involved in higher education is the public parents, students. And their opinions, the the trend of opinion in that group is now the important thing to look at. Um, For example, there is one thing that is almost never commented on. uh, And it is that the enrollment in higher education is down in the last eight years about 20%. Now, that's a big number. And I'll bet you haven't seen that in the national press. <laughs> but uh, in fact, uh, there is um, an agency called the National Student Clearinghouse Research Center that keeps tabs on these things. And it records a drop from uh, 2011. There were 20 and a half million students in higher education Uh 2019, that had dropped to 17.5 million, which is a drop of three million, but the population had increased by five percent. So the the natural thing would have been for the 20 and a half million of 2011 to increase to 21 and a half million by 2019. So there are four million students missing. That's a very big number. Uh, it, you don't see any comment about this, but it, it is. It, it doesn't affect the super elites,
0: right? They're still just as competitive. And so a lot of the people probably who would write about this, who would notice this, the journalists, they tend to focus on those those elite schools. So maybe they're not even
1: aware. Well, one of the things that hides this is that, um, as you say, the elite schools uh, let's suppose that they get fewer applicants. It doesn't matter. I mean, they just simply, they'll fill their quota. Anyway, so you won't see a drop in enrollment in the elite schools. Even below that, the four-year state universities, uh, they'll have a drop in enrollment in the applications, but they'll still fill the numbers. So you don't see the drop. In uh, the, the, There is, in fact, a drop in interest in those schools, but you don't see the drop in numbers. What happens is that everything moves downwards, so the two-year colleges, the numbers for two-year colleges are down by about a third. So they they in fact show the symptom of, of the, the malaise, but in fact the malaise is in fact hitting all, all segments. Um, so what it really means is this, the public is conflicted, there are forces pulling in both directions in the public. One, Force is the is dominated by the old glory of higher education, the, the the splendid prestigious names of Harvard and Yale, and the the impressiveness of the diplomas that students get, the wonderful old buildings. All of that pushes the public in one direction, and the the ingrained habit of thinking that that their students, their their children deserve the best start in life, and that means higher education. So. That pushes the public one way. What's pushing them the other way is the stories they constantly hear about politicization, about riots on campus, about uh, intolerant professors who won't put up with any point of view than their own, uh, about the reduction of intellectual content in classes and so on. And so there are these two conflicting forces. But what people don't seem to realize is that those forces are not in equilibrium. I mean, when when you have a twenty percent reduction in higher education numbers in eight years, it shows that the tilt, the forces, the, they're not in equilibrium. They're tilting in the direction of the public moving away from higher education. And um, one has to remember too that the forces moving the public one way are older than the forces pushing them the other way. I mean the. The, the, the newer forces, so to speak, are the stories about the corruption of higher education. The older ones are, uh, are the, the, in the, the, the habit of sending your kids to, to, higher, to college and the, the sense of reverence for these old names. So there is movement. Uh, and how far the public is going to go is, is going to be the interesting question of the next few years. My, my guess is that the tilt will continue.
0: Uh, one thing you note is that the leftist politics, the leftist outlooks of the, the professors, the radical professors and administrators increasingly now with the growth of uh, the diversity offices and, and, and services, how static that ideology is! It, it sounds it sounds the same as it did 50 years ago. And you note late in the book on the tedium that seems to be setting in. When I hear when you hear the the administrators and professors talk, the language is such a script, and it's such a boring, tiresome, predictable script are they is is I mean in, in 1970 you know Angela Davis you know teaching at, at, at UCLA she actually ended up at UC Santa Cruz that, that was thrilling right uh now to hear to hear the radical professor talking in, in, in class or or talking in interview thing oh it's the same old thing we've heard it over and over again is the tedium are are, are they feeling the tedium themselves is there a desperation setting in here uh, when they feel like some of these trends that you're talking about with demographics or public opinion is maybe looking to be a dim future for them?
1: Well, it's it's a very interesting question, the tedium question. I mean, uh, you know, in the book, I noted the research that proves that students spend about half the time in study outside the classroom that they used to spend. They used to spend 20 hours studying and reading Now uh, per week. Uh, now they spend about 10 hours a week, uh, uh, 12 actually. Um, so students, students are not thrilled with what's going on. I mean, uh, grades have gone up. Yes, that's right. That's right. Well, there's a connect a, a, a collection of little things here. Uh, someone, I think, remarked that it's it's never been so easy to get an A uh, with so little work, and and yet you have to pay a huge amount of money to get it. So, you know, you, you have the worst of both worlds. The education is is, is hugely expensive, and and yet it does uh, very little for you. Um, No, the tedium is a serious factor. The problem is that radical politics doesn't have a very uh, complicated message. Um, You can, you know, you can spell it out in a paragraph. And it is the basic message of class after class. And students are, in a sense, voting with their feet, I suppose. they're Not with their feet, but with their minds. They're, they're, they're obviously showing far less interest in what's going on in, in the classrooms. There are any number of studies um, by all kinds of people, liberals, conservatives, employers, academic researchers, any number of studies that show that students aren't learning very much. They're simply coming out of college without any improvement in their capacity to think, or research, or, or analyze, or read complex documents, or uh, uh, do anything productive in the workplace, and so on. Um, higher education is becoming a, a, almost a sham. Uh, it, it simply is not doing what it's supposed to do, what it always used to do.
0: In, in, in the last few minutes, John, I want to turn to an episode near the end of the book that you were directly involved in. What was the report? A crisis of competence, and how? What? What? What happened after your group issued that report?
1: Well, California Association Scholars. That were, I was president at the time. Uh, wrote a a report on the University of California demonstrating the corruption of uh, the whole effort of the university by radical politics, the concentration of faculty in one political direction, the work in the classrooms dominated by one political ideology, the, the lessening of any kind of productive thinking going on, and so on. And um, we presented that to the Regents, because we knew very well that by that time, this was 2011, 2012, we knew that by that time the, it was unlikely the faculty would have any capacity to listen and respond to what we said. And the same was true of campus administrations. They would have no interest in it because after all, it was an indictment of their management of the campuses. So we addressed the Regents. And the regents uh, immediately sent it down to the campuses and said, well, of course, this has to be discussed on the campuses, um, which was, I mean, we'd spent some time in the report explaining why that couldn't happen. But nevertheless, the regents did that. Uh, campuses produced uh, trivial, uh, off-the-cuff, uh, one-page uh, comments uh, condemning it as anecdotal and um Uh, lacking in any evidence and so on, which none of which was true. There's plenty of evidence quoted in in the report. And so eventually we went back to the regents and said, look, uh, you can see that what we what we said is true. The campuses are unable to deal with this. You have the responsibility for keeping the university free of political influence. And it's time now to do your job. And the regents refused even to receive the report.
0: They they simply didn't want the trouble. They didn't want the bad publicity. They didn't want. Were they worried about their
1: positions? What was the problem? They knew they would have a terrible fight on their hands if they took it seriously. I mean, they, they you you don't pick up a report like that, the report like the one we 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 issued, and schedule hearings on it without preparing yourself for one. Huge pandemonium I mean it, it would be it would be uh, scarring for them they would they would uh, be involved in uh, a great deal of unpleasantness, and they shrank from that
0: and you you actually give a couple of examples where a regent actually did raise his voice against some of the things going on, and that regent certainly paid for doing that, didn't he?
1: That's right, John Rawls, a very courageous man who, um, when the question of affirmative action uh, in the university came up, John Rawls decided that uh, what the regents needed to know, he was chair of the regents at the time, he decided that to discuss this intelligently, the regents had to have facts in front of them, and the facts were going to be the discrepancy between the test scores of um, Minority students admitted in relation to the test scores of students overall who were admitted. And in fact, what John Willis found was that, uh, I mean, especially African-American students were being admitted with test scores, hundreds of points. I mean, really a large, large discrepancy, two, three hundred points below other students. Now, that was something the university didn't want the public to know uh, and didn't want anyone to know. Um, and it, pretty soon, John Boers was the subject of a censure resolution in the regents. I think it was common knowledge that uh, the university pressured regents to, to introduce that resolution and it passed. And John Boers soon left the regents in disgust. And he uttered this classic judgment. He said the regents were about as relevant as furniture when it came to governing the university.
0: One uh, one wonders how some of these people look in the mirror at night. The book is The Breakdown of Higher Education, How It Happened, The Damage It Does, and What Can Be Done.
1: Thank you, John Ellis. Well, thank you for having me, Mark. I appreciate the discussion.